Welcome, everyone, to the Fairly Pretty Podcast. One of these di- one of these weeks, you'll get it right. I have fa- I have faith that you will eventually get it right. Mm, next week, I'm thinking of calling it the Fairly Paul Podcast. Ooh, well, that's fine. I've already come to live with his jokes. I mean, you are the sugar daddy of this podcast. You should get one episode just dedicated to your amazingness. Oh, well. See, now people are going to think I have a diva complex or something. We do, so. Oh, okay. See? See? See, this is what happens. This is where it goes. Brett thinks everybody has a diva complex. It's called projection. Oh, damn. Yeah. Why wouldn't you? Uh, So something that has been interesting me is how has spring been treating you? Uh, Well, yard work sucks. So that's another thing about being a homeowner. Do you have a big yard? No, I actually don't. Uh, but I still hate doing it, and so so actually, this is the first year I decided to hire uh, a landscaping company to take care of it and do the mowing for the for the season and do some landscaping stuff. And uh, what what sucks is I paid them to do some work. Uh, particularly around like some bushes and uh, some plants that were left over from the previous owners that I don't want anymore, and like I already paid them like four four weeks ago, five weeks ago, and uh, they still haven't come out to do it, and I'm not happy about that. They come out to mow, but they don't come out to do the landscaping work, and I'm not happy about that. You, you know, you know, like those statues in like the parks of like the the you know like the like the bunnies made out of bush. You should just have, like, the fairly political logo just made out of bush. <laughs> Do we have a logo? I mean, it's what we ship our podcast with every week. It's the uh, all seeing. Okay. Yeah. The all seeing eye. And it's all green. Do you have neighbors? Because that would be really weird. Do I have what? Do you have close neighbors? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I live, I live in the burbs. So there's literally, like, 50 feet. There's a house on either side. Not even 50. Maybe 20. Bush watching you. Okay, I understand why you do not like mowing. Like, me, I live out in the country. I Me mowing lawn takes about two and a half hours. And I enjoy it. Yeah, no. See, like, I have... If, if I had, um, like, a riding mower or something like that... Uh, oh, like yes. Zero riding, turn, that would oh, yes. be one riding thing... Mo- well, yeah, that would be one thing, and I used to do that. Yeah. Um, like, I actually did that for work a little bit, but now it's like, all right, I work a full time job, and I have like the yard that's like, it's small enough to where it doesn't justify buying a riding mower, so I have to do everything with a push mower, and then it's just big enough to make that really annoying and to take like two hours, and I you, just, you do I just don't wrong. Do it. Here's what you do: you buy a goat. Uh, yeah, goats I do have a Fitston backyard, but in the front yard yeah, that I, would be the problem. I understand your pain with a push mower. 
When I first had this salon, all we had was the first mower. I literally mowed for the first hour, walked in, and said, I'm not mowing anymore. Yeah. <laughs> because I had gotten 10% of it done in an hour. Yeah, it sucks. So, anyway. But now it's costing me $50 every two weeks. Because even the place that I'm playing it, they had the same problem where uh, my backyard is fenced in and the gate to get into it isn't wide enough to get their big, like, zero turn through. So they have to do it with a push mower. And so, like, so they charge me more for that. And I'm so, like, yeah, this sucks. Another question that I have that kind of relates to the podcast. Is it just me or does Jeff Beauregard Sessions have an incredibly Confederate sounding name? <laughs> Uh, yes, it's actually yeah. Jefferson Beauregard Sessions the Third. Oh my God! Yeah. God damn! <laughs> no, that's a, that's about as Alabama as it gets. Alabama. Yeah, I, mean, I like it. That's definitely not just you. So, so here's one thing I want to ask that I've noticed: uh, Why do people make their kids' names into a hashtag? So I feel like maybe this is like the old guy in me that really only experiences this. You guys maybe are too young that none of your friends have kids. But, uh, you know, I'm going 30 this year. And so most of my friends have kids. And like you'll see their posts on Instagram or Facebook. And they're, they're literally they make their kids name a hashtag. And so it'll be like, you know, hashtag spring, hashtag swing set, hashtag james brown or like whatever his name is right it's like why your kid's name is not a hashtag who is using this why would you make this a hashtag i don't understand you want to know who's using it using that said hashtag a creepy stockle yeah i mean i i don't know like it's just so weird speaking of creepy stalkers uh, Jeff Sessions wants to be back on, wants to bring back Tough on Crime. Is Jeff Sessions a creepy stalker? No, he's arresting the creepy stalkers. No, oh. he's, he's he's creepy. I he, feel like um, I feel like that's not actually what he's trying to do. So yeah, so this story uh, comes from NPR. Uh, in a memo, staff Attorney General Jeff Sessions ordered federal prosecutors to charge and pursue the most serious, readily provable offense a move that marks significant reversal of Obama-era policies on low-level drug crimes. The two-page memo, which was publicly released Friday, lays out a policy of strict enforcement that rolls back the comparatively lenient stance uh, established by Eric Holder, one of Sessions' predecessors under President Obama. Uh, it said this quote, or the memo says, quote, This policy affirms our responsibility to enforce the law, is moral and just, and produces consistency. This policy fully utilizes the tools Congress has given us. Uh, Sessions told this to thousands of assistant U.S. attorneys. Uh, it says, quote, by definition, the most serious offenses are those that carry the most substantial guidelines sentence, including mandatory minimum sentences, end quote. He elaborated on the memo in a brief speech to the Sergeant's Benevolent Association of New York City, uh, which honored him with an award Friday in Washington, D.C. He said, quote, Charging and sentencing recommendations are bedrock responsibilities of any prosecutor, and I trust our prosecutors in the field to make good judgments. They deserve to be unhandcuffed and not micromanaged from Washington, end quote. 
Uh, Holder had asked prosecutors to avoid slapping nonviolent drug offenders with crimes that carried mandatory minimum sentences. Practices that, as NPR's Tamara Keith explains, give judges and prosecutors little discretion over the length of a prison term if a suspect is convicted. Holder's recommendation had been aimed partly at helping reduce burgeoning prison populations in the U.S. Now, if prosecutors wish to pursue lesser charges for these low-level crimes, they will need to obtain approval for the exception from a U.S. attorney, assistant attorney general, or another supervisor. But in his speech Friday, Sessions asserted that the policy change is aimed not at low-level drug users, but rather drug dealers and traffickers. He said, quote, If you are a drug trafficker, we will not look the other way. We will not be willfully blind to your misconduct, end quote. Uh, Tamara Keith notes that this marks a return to the tough-on-crime policy of the 1980s and 1990s, a return that advocacy groups have feared for some time. So, Amr, what's your thoughts? I mean, honestly, I'm not even remotely surprised here. Like, during the presidential debates, Donald Trump said that he thought that stop and frisk was a good idea, that he thought that all these practices were good, that minimum, actually, I don't know if he said mandatory minimums are good. I feel like he did, but I can't say that with any level of definitiveness. I don't think he's going to state that as speculation on my part. But I know for a fact that Mr. Sessions has stated that he believes that anyone who smokes marijuana or indulges in marijuana use is just, they cannot be a good person. Quote, no one who has smoked marijuana can be a good person. I believe that's his quote anyway. And just all of this posturing and this moral superiority that he's taken doesn't surprise me that he's trying to work towards raising the prison population. And the reason he's trying to raise the prison population is because of private due to privatized prisons and the system we have in terms of privatized prisons, they make a lot of money and then they and as a result, people like Sessions are allowed to make a lot of money. And that is my hot potato. Conspiracy theory. <laughs> All right. Well, Brett, what's your hot potato? Uh, I'm fine with it as long as, I mean, I disagree with like the trend of like um, the DEA going after people like using pot or like um, people who are addicted to like meth in like the streets. Because uh, it doesn't work, but um, I think that most of the policies that Trump has proposed and his administration is using are going after um, the dealers as opposed to um, the actual users. Because the users are the American people who are victims of um, drugs from the cartels. Um, so yeah, yeah, I, I think I'm for it. <clears throat> That's my hot potato. All right. So next up, Alan, do you want to go next? Oh, we didn't introduce him, by the way. Oh, shit. Didn't introduce him. We have a person. <laughs> this. His name is Alan. Hi. He's, bookie. He's what? He's my bookie. Okay. Hi. 
I'm Alan. <laughs> okay. Hi, Let's Alan. continue. <laughs> yep. <laughs> what are your thoughts? Um, I don't know exactly. Yes. Yeah, those... Nice music. It's just the talking of, like, pot and that in general. Like, let's put this right. Pot is... It's not great, but... There were also about a thousand and one things that are a hell of a lot worse. Like, there are drugs out there that can kill you through contact. And the legal dose is less than a gram. Like, there was all kinds of terrible, crazy stuff out there. Like, <clears throat> I did, my, it's like, I'm full being careful on the stuff, but it's just... There's better things to focus on. Well, I don't think this was focused directly at marijuana. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it, it it applies yeah. to all kinds of things. Yeah. Um, okay. But, you know, I think... To be honest with you, on the one hand... Uh, well, on both hands, actually. It's not really surprising. Uh, this is what Trump campaigned as, right? He campaigned no, on law and order. Um you know, he campaigned on, you know, getting tough on crime, stop and frisk, all that stuff. So uh, this is what Democrats were worried about with Sessions, that he would, you know, bring back tough on crime policies. And um, it's really disappointing. So the federal prison population dropped under Obama for the first time since the 1980s. So ever since the 1980s, the federal prison population had increased every year. Uh, that finally started to drop over the last couple of years. This is just going to reverse it. Um, I think the yeah. prison population thing is certainly, or the private prison thing. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't know that Sessions plays into that or thought about that. I don't think he really cares. I mean, my Jeff Sessions is a guy who probably thinks all prisons should be private because the government can't do anything except arrest people. So, um, but I don't think like. You know, there were definite steps the administration that the Obama administration took at the in the last couple of years to cut down on prisons and cut down an overpopulation of prisons. This is all that just goes out the window. And yeah, a big part of this is going to be drugs. Right. Um, you know, he talked in there. He did say that this was they were going after <laughs> drug traffickers. And, you know, he says he's not aimed at low level drug users, but. I don't believe that for one second. I mean, this is a guy that in his 1986 hearing to be a, on a uh, on a federal judge, he said that, uh, or it came out, that he said that he thought the KKK was a decent group until he found out they smoked marijuana, right? Oh, my God. So, like, he's consistently ignored science and data. He called marijuana a gateway drug. Uh, he very recently said it was just as bad as heroin. So, oh. like, the, he's not just going to cut down on dealers and traffickers. No, he's going to cut down on everybody. That's who makes up the bulk of the prison population anyway. Uh, the federal prison population. So, And I also don't really understand how this is a reduction of micromanaging. If he's now going to require prosecutors to get waivers from the Attorney General in order to pursue leniency. Um, that doesn't really... That sounds like micromanaging to me, but... Anyway. All right. 
next up, looks like we're going to be talking about... Actually, are we going to be talking about the thing? Yeah, we can. Be... Yeah, we can. All right. I didn't take very long. Okay. So next up, we're talking about the West Virginia Supreme Court. So the West Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals ruled this week that anti-gay attacks cannot be prosecuted under the state's hate crime law, uh, a decision that activists said diverged from recent outcomes in gay and transgender rights cases. The ruling clears the way for a college athlete accused of assaulting two gay men to be tried on lesser charges. The case hinged on whether attacks based on sexual orientation could fall under a hate crime law that does not explicitly mention sexual orientation. Prosecuting lawyers in Cabell County where the attack took place, argued that, quote, sex, which the law lists as a protected category, includes crimes committed on the basis of sexual orientation. But the court was not convinced. In a 3-2 to two ruling handed down on Tuesday, they found that the word sex in West Virginia Code 61621B is unambiguous and clearly imparts being male or female and does not include sexual orientation, according to a majority opinion written by Chief Justice Alan H. Lowry II. Uh, the court's ruling was celebrated by West Virginia's Attorney General Patrick Morrissey, who did not side with the state, which argued that sexual orientation was a protected category under the hate crime law. In a statement, he said he called the attack on the two men deeply disturbing and heinous, but said, quote, such conduct does not give the judicial system a license to rewrite state law, end quote. The consideration appeared to weigh heavily on the court as well. In his opinion, Justice Lowry said the ruling was based in part on the state legislature's history of resistance to adding sexual orientation to its hate crime law, a change that has been proposed and rejected 26 times since 1993. West Virginia is only one of six states with a hate crime law that includes sex and its protections, but not sexual orientation or gender identity. So the attack is at the heart of the West Virginia case from 2015. Uh, when prosecutors said Stuart Butler, then a running back with the Marshall University football team, attacked two men after he saw them kissing in public. Prosecutors said Mr. Butler shouted homophobic slurs at them from his car, and then got out and punched them in their faces, knocking one of them to the ground. So, uh, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm legally I'm gonna side with the court on this one. I to an extent. Uh, I think the ruling makes a lot of sense uh, if you read the letter of the law and take into account the legislative history like they did. Um, you know, the state has considered adding sexual orientation to its hate crime law 26 times. They've rejected it. Well, that it's clear that at least the legislature considers sexual orientation, gender and identity separate from sex. And I think that's what the court ruled on. I mean... If the Supreme Court of West Virginia isn't supposed to, you know, carry out the law as written by uh, the legislature, as long as it's constitutional, um, I think they did the right thing here. That said, Morally. I think this is going to set up an interesting case going forward as to uh, how this, because other courts have ruled in favor of the idea that sexual identity or sexual orientation and gender identity are covered by sex and hate crime laws. Um, because the argument goes that when you attack someone for being homosexual, for example, what you're really attacking them is based on gender norms, right? So if 
when you attack somebody, these two guys kissing, if the guy had been kissing a woman, well, this this person wouldn't have attacked him, right? So, like, it's not that he was attacking him because he was a guy or something like that. It's it's because he was attacking him saying, no, like, men are only supposed to be with women, right? And so if you're with a man, you know, you're not following gender norms, and therefore I'm going to attack you. And courts have, have upheld that in other cases. Uh, and most recently, the uh, the federal appeals court held, upheld that with the Obama-era regulations for schools that said that Title X protections for sex covered transgender students and, and also sexual orientation. And the court agreed with them there. So it would be interesting to see if this ends up going higher because um, there's a conflict there and they're at two different levels. Um, so I'm interested, I'm interested to see where that goes, but I also pose a question that, uh, you know, if a white person was kissing a black person and a white person attacked them for an interracial relationship, that would be a racial hate crime, right? Yes. And so, yeah, that totally would be. So if you're attacking the white person, it's not because they're white. It's because you're doing something that they, you don't think a white person should be doing. So that is similar thing here, right? And so that's why I tend to agree with the reasoning of the prosecution, but I'm interested to see what you guys think of that. All right. Can I just say, you guys probably chose like the perfect guests to have discussing this. I know, go ahead. Because, well, first of all, I think it should be qualified as hate crime, but there is some slight bias for me because I am bi. Like, there, I have some slight bias on that fault. But like, you're not attacking them because of what they're doing. But like, you're not attacking them because they're kissing, but because they're both male and doing so. Like, that's the point. It's like that's why it should be. I understand your point about how they've had it. I have these you said 26 times they've put that in and 26 times it's been denied yes yes okay that makes that makes sense why it would be ruled that way I I understand and accept that it's goodness bless I'm on alright um well I Sorry. have a pretty controversial opinion on this yeah. You always uh, surprising. Do. Um I think that there should be no hate crime laws at all. And if someone beats up a guy for being gay, he just gets charged for assault like everyone else. Because what it does is when you have a hate crime law on top of like charging someone for assault, basically what it is is it's the state saying that it's morally wrong for someone to be um, to have like a negative view about like gays or like a negative view about like something that's controversial. And as much as like I disagree that someone should like assault someone for being gay, like the state shouldn't be like pushing a certain like moral agenda in terms of um, like homosexuality or like trans people or anything like that <clears throat> so so let me ask you a question 
Do you think also there should be no terrorism laws? Um, no, there should be terrorism laws. So what's the difference between a hate crime law and a terrorism law? Well, a terrorism law is because the terrorist is actively um, attacking the state as an entity rather than a person <clears throat> making some kind of stance against um, a, a social issue or like a certain social group. So it would make sense that the state would add extra charges if it was terrorism because it's threatening the state itself. Uh, well, not always. I mean, so for terrorism? example, well, so for example, when Omar Mateen went and shot up the, the Pulse nightclub in Florida, he wasn't attacking the state. And that was deemed terrorism. Um, well, if, if there was like a, if there, if there was a person who like went to a gay nightclub and shot up like 50 people, that's obviously a terrorist attack. You don't need like a hate crime law, That it isn't synonymous. So, um, I don't really get what you're going with that because it isn't really synonymous. Well, no, because the point of hate crime laws is that, uh, the, the point of hate crime is that it intimidates people. It's not just that you attack them for being black or being, which is where hate crime laws generally started, right? Civil rights protections in the 60s. It, was, it wasn't just that you attacked them for being black. It was that you were terrorizing the, the community. You were making an example, right? So hate crime laws were born out of the idea of the KKK, for example, going and uh, lynching someone and burning a cross. When you were lynching them, you weren't just saying, I don't like you because you're black. You were sending a message to the black community that they were in danger. That's the point of hate crime laws. And so the same thing goes for anything else, right? If you attack a woman for being a woman, if you attack homosexuals for being homosexual, you're sending a message that you're not accepted, that your kind isn't accepted. And, yeah, and when so it, that's when a the form government of terrorism, is it not? It, it when the government explicitly punishes that, what they're doing is they're punishing a certain viewpoint that they don't really have the authority to like say is right or wrong. So then there well, shouldn't be terrorism laws. Well, also another thing is that a thing with it is like no. What the people that are attacking? It's also a bit of a case of they're trying to almost beat people into submission. Just get people to realize that yeah, you're not welcome here, and that this thing is wrong. That they're like they're enforcing their morals on others as well. Yeah, like, the ultimate point. The state's doing. Okay, the state yeah, is, so, so, the state is so, doing this, action. but no, no, I'm so, so the right to have the attitude. Okay, okay, but when someone attacks theoretically the state, right? For isn't that and you charge them with the terrorism law? Isn't that theoretically trying to legislate political ideology? Because let's say let's say a communist goes and attacks a federal building, or let's say uh, let's take the Oklahoma City bombing, right? Uh, Timothy McVeigh was a right-wing militant in the sense that he thought the government had overreached its limitations. Now he was a terrorist. They charged him with terrorist charges, but that was a political ideology he had. So were the terrorism charges not legislating his political ideology? Yeah, but I mean they could have simply charged him with murder. All right, 
if he didn't have a, a an ideology like that and he still did what he did, he'd still get charged with being a terrorist. So I don't think okay. that's the same thing. Like, once again, the government should exclusively like look at the action. Like, under law, I would I would probably define a terrorist attack as something like that um, uses like extreme action and has like a high level of casualties. But but just to be clear, in, in fact, I would argue the difference is when Timothy McVeigh bombed the federal building in Oklahoma City, the people inside that building, some of them may have agreed with him. Right. He attacked based on his ideology and he attacked people that were innocent. This guy who who beat up these two gay men that were kissing, not only beat them up because of an ideology. So he already met that criteria that you put out. But he attacked people that were actually implementing it. Right. He attacked two gay men kissing. He didn't bomb a federal building because gay marriage was legal. That would have been considered terrorism. Would it not have been? Yeah. Okay, but he didn't do that. Instead, he just found two gay guys kissing, and he beat the shit out of them. Yeah, that's assault. It isn't a hate crime. Well, it is a hate crime, but, but the government... But is it not, is like it not terrorism, then? But here's the thing. A hate, a, a hate crimes can be easily abused. I will admit that. Like, if you attack a... I don't think there's any like, evidence. Let's, see, let's say, well, it can be. Like, those are the cases where a, full, yeah, like a, white man can, a white man can attack a black man, and the black man can press, press for hate crime. And it's possible for no. it to go through, even though they did, they won't explicitly attacking them for being black. No, it's that's possible. no, that's not. When you charge with hate crime, you have to prove that they did it for a reason. That's part of the statute. Okay. Um. All right. If I may give my little potato. Yep. So, I'd like to take us back into the days of yore, in the eighteen. 18- hundreds late 1800s i'm pretty sure to plessy v ferguson so just to be 100 percent clear you guys know what plessy v ferguson is right yeah yeah probably still good to explain for people who don't and i can the audience okay so plessy v ferguson essentially speaking there was a gentleman who didn't believe that he was getting proper accommodations on a train, and he sued. I might, Is this correct? Yeah. And the courts essentially ruled separate but equal, which means that segregation was legal and constitutional so long as both African Americans and whites were being treated equally. However, when it came time for Brown versus Board of Education, which essentially was a case in terms of the public schools, the, the Supreme Court ruled that this was not okay, that segregation was not constitutional. And so I think in this situation, we get to a point where it says, well, is it okay for um, this to be constitutional? And according to the Constitution, you have the right to freedom of speech. You don't have the right to beat someone up because they love someone different than you. Like this nation was founded on a document which said, and I quote, "We hold these truths to be oh, self get it. that all men are created oh, equal. Oh yeah, we get it. Certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, <laughs> pursuit of happiness." Okay. 
I'm deeply and, disturbed that that exasperates you, Brett, but please continue. And the fact that we need to have some kind of special ordinance to try and get this for gay people appalls me. We shouldn't need to have this kind of thing. But in the Supreme Court, they should say that it doesn't matter what the law states. According to the Constitution, the supreme law of the land, you cannot beat someone up because of their beliefs or because of who they believe they should be in a romantic relationship with. And Brett brings up this point of, well, you shouldn't have hate crimes because you shouldn't because of the First Amendment. You know, you should be able to believe whatever you want. Like, I think that you should be able to believe whatever you want. Like, you know, I don't think like if you believe that the Nazis were right, you can march down the streets in a neo-Nazi rally. You can save your head. You can get a tacky swastika tattoo and say whatever you want to. But the minute that you start physically assaulting someone because they don't have the same belief as you is when that's not okay. Like, I don't think it's okay when Antifa goes around punching people that they disagree with. And we end up with situations like the Berkeley riots. But on the other side of the coin, that also means that people on the right and people who are believing these things that gay marriage isn't right or that Jew being Jewish isn't okay, appalling people as they are, they shouldn't be able to assault people for these beliefs and get away with it. Okay, well, I think, yeah, but I think the bigger picture further is... with hate crime laws because saying that it's not okay to assault one because of their beliefs, that's fine. You just charge them for assault then. Why do you have to charge them? Why do you first have to prove an ideology and then prove that they did it because of ideology? Why can't you just charge them for assault? Yeah, so again, because, why don't we because... just charge why don't we just charge Timothy McVeigh with murder? Is it's so much more than that. Killing someone or attacking someone because they don't have a, the same belief as you is a societal issue. We have a whole Thanks to the bunch, all the people who I think it, someone punched it. Richard Spencer was punched in the face, right? Yeah. Was that yeah. a hate crime? Yes, honestly, it was. I don't think Richard Spencer should have been punched in the face. I am one of those people who do not think that you should be physically assaulted for your beliefs, regardless of whether or not society at large deems them to be morally correct. Because everybody has a view. Because, like, let's say I'm pro-gay merit, which I am, by the way. And a bunch of people say, believing that gay marriage is okay is, an is a morally appalling view. And from their point of view, it is. By the logic that it would be okay for me to punch them for believing their belief, it would be just as morally justifiable in their minds to punch me. And to quote Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi, an eye for an eye will make us all blind. That's a very good point. Like, hate, like uh, hate crimes are not one-sided. Like, the gay guy could have attacked the white guy or attacked the straight guy for not believing that gay gays should have merit, should have be able to be with each other. Well, so. 
I think, uh, is that where we all stand on that? Seemed like it. Okay. So, the next story. Next story, we'll be talking about the EPA releasing five scientists from its board of scientific counselors. So, the EPA will not be renewing the terms of at least five scientists on its 18-member board of scientific counselors, according to a Sunday night report from the New York Times. The Times wrote that EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt would consider replacing those scientists with representatives from industries whose pollution the agency is supposed to regulate, according to J.P. Frere, a spokesperson for Pruitt. Uh, Ars Technica, which is where the story comes from, contacted the EPA for comment on how it will choose replacements for the dismissed scientists, but the agency did not respond. Speaking to the Washington Post, Pruitt spokesman Frere said the dismissed scientists could reapply for their positions. He said, quote, We are not going to rubber stamp the last administration's appointees. Instead, they should participate in the same open competitive process as the rest of the applicant pool. Uh, he also added, We are making a clean break with the last administration's approach. Uh, conservative federal legislators have complained that the EPA Scientific Advisory Board, uh, a 47-member panel that works with the Board of Scientific Counselors, lacks, quote, balance. Although the board is independent and composed of relevant experts who can assess underlying science that informs EPA policy. Earlier this year, the House Science Committee, led by Lamar Smith, Republican from Texas, uh, pushed for reforms to the Scientific Advisory Board to put more industry representatives in those seats and prevent scientists from holding EPA grants from sitting on the board. So... I mean, I feel like everybody already knows how I feel about this. I mean, again, this is just characteristic Pruitt. Like, you all, actually not everyone remembers, but Steve Bannon, when he went, I think it was RNC. So when Steve Bannon went to RNC, he basically said, you know, the people that we put in charge of the Department of Education and basically the EPA, we've essentially put in charge of these organizations to run them into the ground so that we can essentially get rid of them. There were two bills introduced in the House, which essentially said, by 2018, we will get rid of the EPA, and by 2018, we will get rid of the Department of Education. The reason they have this is because they don't believe that these kinds of government functions are necessary or very helpful to them. And the reason this is a thing is because we have big coal and big oil spending a great deal of money trying to get these people, these senators, to believe what they want by giving them money and by giving them lobbying jobs. Like, if you look at... There, there's one, one of the few things that I was actually very happy to see in President Trump's proposal was the whole thing of when you leave Washington, you aren't allowed to just go and become a lobbyist. Although the fact that he hired one of Verizon's former lawyers as the head of the FCC really does not mesh with that. I don't know what John Boehner is doing right now, but I'm pretty sure he's a lobbyist for a pretty big company. 
Do you know what John Boehner's doing now? Uh, I think he's a consultant. But also, just to be clear, Pi was in the SEC before Trump came into office. I think he was appointed by Bush. That's fair. That's fair. But Trump still made him head of the FCC. Well, he was the ranking member, so he, by default, became the head. So, no. so the FCC is an independent uh, regulatory body. So the president is under, like, doesn't have nearly as much control over how it's structured. Then what happened to the dingo? Do what? What happened to the dingo? Uh, He resigned when Obama left. Oh. I miss the dingo. Yeah. It used to be five members and now it's just three. Anyways... That point aside, which I'm, thank you for pointing out my factual inaccuracy. Anytime. Like the whole thing is that we have all these lobbyists lobbying senators, and we have all these lobbyists lobbying people in the House in order to try and get them to do things that are in their better business interests. Now, there's this Robin Williams joke that I'm going to keep on mentioning and quoting ad infinitum, which is that. Senators and members of the House and just politicians in general should be like NASCAR drivers. Anyone who ever gives them a single dime means they have their logo emblazoned on that on whatever that politician is wearing. So that way, when they vote, we know exactly why they voted that way. And that is my hot potato. Well, I think, uh, first of all, I mean, coming from Pruitt, it's not surprising in the least. I mean, this is a guy who the idea that he would want to put people into regulatory positions um, that are in the industries that are regulated. Not surprisingly, at least. I mean, this is a guy who literally it was discovered uh, right after he was appointed to the EPA. His emails uh, had to be turned over because of a court case he was involved in. And he was getting you know rules and, and um, what's the word I'm looking for? Press releases, and things like that. Uh, regulations and, and and opinions that he was putting out were literally like word for word provided by fossil fuel industry executives that either donated to him or just, you know, worked with him. And they would say, hey, here's what we want you to say. And he would literally just copy and paste it. Right. So coming from Pruitt, it's not surprising in the least. Uh, same goes for congressional Republicans. Um, I, they don't even really pretend to not be completely corrupt anymore. Um, they're specifically trying to get industry insiders into regulatory bodies. And I think, actually, I want to point out something that is, bugs me about this, because to me, this is perfectly emblematic of the Trump presidency as a whole, which was this idea that people had that always blew my mind, which was that Trump was going to clean up the corruption in Washington because he was an outsider. But the evidence for that was that he said on TV that he was bribing politicians, right? And to me, that always struck me as a bit nonsensical because my thought was, you're just cutting out the middleman. So you you took the politicians that were getting bribed by millionaires and billionaires, you got rid of them, and you just elected the billionaire that was bribing them. Yeah, yeah. And the same thing's happening here. 
it's it, like people have been complaining for ever that corporations have too much influence over government, right? And yes, that idea, I mean, this was the whole hashtag drain the swamp thing was that he was going to get rid of uh, the cronyism in Washington, but instead they're just getting rid of the middleman. It's like, no, we don't have to have the industry regulate the EPA. We're just going to put industry people in the EPA. Like literally we're going to put industry representatives into the scientific advisory board. So we're just cutting out the middleman now. The corruption is just like it's just we're just getting rid of the one barrier of conscience that a politician might have. And we're just putting unelected corporate titans in there, which is fascinating to me. And I just cannot believe every time something like this comes up that anybody ever thought Trump was actually going to drain the swamp. It was like he was the swamp. I don't understand what the thought process was. Um, well, Trump said that he was going to bring in business leaders. Like he said, I'm going to bring the in the best people from business. That's not draining the swamp. <clears throat> that's, that's just making more swamp. So, and, and um, the other part to this is regulatory no, bodies already hold this. hearings and receive feedback from industry and the public. So are any just, rules and regulations are subject to public just, comment just, periods. Just, and the industry often... Like, you can sue in court if you don't think rules and regulations are legal. And so, you know, this idea that uh, industry didn't have any representation because they weren't on this board, it's ridiculous. They hold hearings. They can be reviewed in court. They're all regulations are subject to public approval. Like, there was already a place for them there. Getting rid of scientists to put making, to put corporate lawyers in there is just ridiculous. Yeah. Like, a science... Like- you put in a corporate lawyer, they're going to say what's going to be beneficial to them and a corporation. <laughs> a scientist, they're probably going to be more moral. They're going to they're going to be like, okay, this is my opinion. This is the this is the information to back it up. Well, and they're going to give you all the information. And a lot of them will give you all the information, including the information that contradicts them slightly. A lawyer is just going to, okay, here's the information that backs me up. I'm not going to hand you even a, a shred of what goes against me. All right, Brett, what's your take? I think it's I think it's fine to have like certain business people looking over um, areas of government. I mean, that's you said people got lied to in the campaign, and that simply isn't true because Trump was like the embodiment like what he promised which is kind of like the the billionaire business person absolute killer who comes in and uh has nothing else to do he's already summoned the mountain and now he just wants to help out the country that's given him the opportunities that he's had and he's like oh i know a ton of people who are like this like tillerson i i honestly like genuinely believe that he has at least some of like the country's interests in mind because I mean at a certain point of wealth you're just like uh, what else is there to gain what else is there to earn and a lot of people especially older white guys to be honest fall um, are fairly patriotic and um, as long as there's transparency I have no problem with like 
a CEO of a company taking over a certain bureau that has like experience that he has a crap ton in and can do well. So I think that it's fine um, as long as there's transparency to it. What's the value of adding corporate representatives to a scientific advisory board in the place of scientists? Um, not much of a value, but at least it's transparent. I mean, if people have a huge problem with it, they'll protest it and it'll eventually get changed or it won't. And Trump will like take a hit because of that. So once again, like it's, it's not like a perfect deal, but I'd much rather have at the end of the day, like someone who who can do like a better job in like essential government bureaus than um, just some bureaucrat with like not nearly as much practical experience. Okay. Next story. Next story. All right. <sighs> Sorry. Um, South Korea has elected a new president that wants to treat North Korea differently. Yeah, so uh, Moon Jae-in of the Liberal Democratic Party uh, was just elected the president of South Korea after the outgoing president was, uh, she was impeached, I guess their form of impeachment, and uh, she was actually arrested and she's being prosecuted for corruption charges. So uh, Moon Jae-in is a career human rights lawyer and the son of North Korean refugees. He's pledged to review his predecessor's decision to allow the U.S. to deploy the THAAD uh, missile defense system in South Korea, uh, which is like uh, an, an anti-nuclear missile defense system that the U.S. Uh, worked. The U.S. basically paid for and installed in South Korea. Um, and, but South Korea worked with us on that. Uh, so... He's pledged to review his predecessor's decision to allow the U.S. to deploy the THAAD missile defense system in South Korea and said he wants to improve relations with North Korea, including reopening a joint industrial park on the northern side of the border that the previous president uh, had said was funneling money to Kim Jong-un's regime in Pyongyang. That stands in stark contrast to the Trump administration's far more aggressive stance toward the dictatorial regime in Pyongyang. Fearful that North Korea is rapidly developing missiles capable of hitting mainland America, the administration has sent some of the U.S. Navy's most powerful warships to South Korea. And top administration officials are openly talking about a potential preemptive military strike on North Korea's nuclear facilities. They also sped up the deployment of the THAAD system currently in place on a South Korean golf course. Uh, but perhaps, or but despite, or perhaps because of, the very real threat North Korea poses to the South, many South Koreans favor a gentler approach toward Pyongyang. After all, South Korea's capital city, Seoul, is within direct firing range of thousands of pieces of North Korean artillery already lined up along the border. Um, a, 2004, a 2005 war game predicted that a North Korean attack would kill 100,000 people in Seoul in the first few days alone. There is also robust opposition to the THAAD in some parts of South Korea over safety and environmental concerns, as well as fear that China, which staunchly opposes THAAD, will inflict severe economic punishment on South Korea in response to its deployment. Um, it, with Moon, whose victory ends nearly a decade of conservative rule in South Korea now coming into office, Thad's future, as well as the future 
of the U.S.-South Korea relationship is uncertain. And in fact, uh, in an interview with Reuters in late April, Trump made a number of stunning statements that in indicating that he plans to take a hard line with South Korea over trade and the cost of deploying THAAD. The president said during the interview that he thought Washington's free trade agreement with South Korea was a bad deal for the U.S., that he would withdraw from it if they were unable to renegotiate one to his liking. Uh, Trump also said that he expected South Korea to pay for THAAD. This, perhaps surprisingly, not surprisingly, did not go over particularly well in Seoul. However, shortly after that interview, NBC News reported that Trump's national security advisor, General H.R. McMaster, had quietly called the South Koreans to reassure them that the U.S. would continue to pay for THAAD, directly con contradicting his boss's statement. So, Brett, thoughts? Um, <clears throat> I, I agree with Trump in certain parts, and I disagree in others. Um, he's got the right approach of, like, trying to make South Korea, like, pay more for, um, for their own defense, because it is their own country. And it's kind of like America trying to prevent a crisis that is half a world away. Um, well, uh, keep in mind that... Just... Hand, uh, let we, should, we go one at a time. We should probably yeah. be uh, encouraging a de-escalation rather than an escalation, so that means less uh, beating of the war drums, uh, because it's not like anything really has changed in North Korea except for just the rhetoric of the leadership in both countries. So if Trump tones down his rhetoric, I think Kim Jong-un will follow and we'll go back to just coexisting. Well, actually, just to be fair, and, and maybe you have something else to say after this, um, there has been an increase in nuclear weapons testing and the range that they've reached. So I think that is theoretically an escalation. Um, yeah, but they, they've tested nuclear weapons in the past and it only matters if they like plan on using them um, against us. And that would depend on whether or not the U.S. is going to be aggressive or not. Okay. All right. Alan? Okay. Well, like, you talked about, about, um, uh, then if America is aggressive, North Korea will step, will act, like, well, keep in mind, in those schools, they are literally teaching their people to hate the U.S. Okay. That's one of the things they literally, they do. They teach people to hate the U.S. And, Gil Spock talked about well, spending a lot of money to defend the threat that's half a world away. Well, here's the thing. Yes, yes, I believe they should pay, help pay for their for the defense system. But it's not just defending them. It's defending a good bit. Uh, it's also defending us because we're stopping it before it, before it gets too far. Well, the U.S. is perfectly capable of defending itself. Like. Yeah. The chances of a nuke, North Korean nuke, reaching like even Hawaii is pretty slim. True. Without getting shot down by our own defense systems, so I don't really think that's a legitimate concern. Like the only losers here is North Korea. I mean, sorry, South Korea and Japan. And 
to be honest, like all of their spending has been really lackluster. And honestly, like if the U.S. like stepped down in terms of like military bases and like South Korea and Japan and like funding the defense, it would kind of um, blunt um, North Korean propaganda that like the U.S. is like this evil empire that wants to like control the world and like global domination and ultimately like i think south korea working with north korea on its own is the only way that we can like truly de-escalate and like make any ground because once again like you said they teach their people to hate the u.s and not specifically like americans just like the u.s government because they think it's like this global empire and everyone's being exploited under it so if everyone's being exploited under it if they're just talking to like south korea on its loan then it's just a victim of the u.s rather than a u.s puppet i feel the need to point out that this is technically speaking alan's time okay uh, I, can't, I know, I think it stopped. Yeah, I think that was fair. I think it was just a rebuttal. Yeah, that was just a rebuttal. I was done. I don't yeah. have long opinions. I, um... Well, actually, I want to... First of all, say that the fact that North Koreans are taught to hate the United States, like, that doesn't do anything to me. I think there are lots of countries where they're taught to hate the United States. I think the United States is, well, I think there, there are lots of places where nobody has to be taught to hate the United States, to be honest with you. Well, yeah. So, so to well, me that I, I don't really pay any attention to that. I do think, however, there is a vested interest the United States has, uh, in Southeast Asia, uh, economically. And I, I think, you know, the THAAD system only costs about a billion dollars. If you're really concerned about um, economic interests, a uh, billion dollars for the missile system to protect South Korea is really not a whole lot. Um, because I think the the big question here is um, what China does. Because I, like anything else, this is proxy, right? So just like Syria is a proxy for Russia, South Korea and Japan, to an extent, are a proxy for China. Right, uh, China is nuclear. China has ambitions to be dominant in Southeast Asia um, and to be a global power, just like Russia does. And it's against the United States' interests to allow that to happen. And so China has typically supported North Korea and uh, a dovish policy toward the North. Uh, recently, though, I think it's been interesting. They've supported Trump and started to clamp down on Pyongyang. But now, if they see an opening with South Korea, you know, because China opposed, you know, as I mentioned in here, China opposed the THAAD system in South Korea, which is one of the reasons South Korea, you know, uh, Min, uh, what's his name, uh, Moon, uh, Moon Jae-in, I think is his name, yeah, Moon Jae-in, the new president in South Korea, um, you know, part of his uh, pitch was that you know he opposed THAAD because it hurt relations with China. And if this creates an opening now for South Korea and North Korea and China to get a cozier relationship and the U.S. is frozen out of that, um, I think 
well, I, I don't think, that is going to create problems both economically and militarily for the United States and Southeast Asia. So I don't necessarily think this is... On the one hand, this is a good development if you want to avoid war. I don't think war with North Korea, we talked about it a few episodes back, is the right path. I think it would be devastating. I would like to see North Korea and South Korea um, become somewhat more amicable, maybe get people into uh, North Korea um, that can start to change the disastrous starvation and um, economic issues that they're having there, which from a humanitarian perspective are, are awful. Um, that would be nice, but from a strategic standpoint too, um, man, I, I worry what this means for Japan, right? Because Japan isn't going to be able to create some alliance and North Korea and China both hate Japan. Um, South Korea, you know, there's a lot of bad history between they aren't Japan a fan and either. Most... Do what? Oh, yeah. They aren't a fan either. Yeah. I mean, South Korea and Japan are allied because of the United States. And if South oh, Korea yeah. and China and North Korea all kind of join in again, that doesn't speak well for Japan because there's a lot of bad history and a lot of bad blood there. So I oh, yeah. worry what that means for Japan. But again, I, I do want to want to stress that in terms of, of North Korea, um, I, you know, there's a part of me that thinks that you got to continue to clamp down to hopefully change things. On the other hand, we've been clamping down for 60 years now. Really hasn't changed anything. And there's so <laughs> much devastation inside the country. It, it, it almost starts to feel like the Cuba thing, where it's like you start to wonder if you would have a better impact by pulling back um, uh, restrictions and embargoes uh, to bring culture and um, to make the country not so isolated and cut off. Uh, and if that would be the better strategy. And, and there's a really good story on, uh, on Vox, and it's a slip, uh, snippet from a book, actually, from a, a woman who defected from North Korea. And she's now a human rights activist. She wrote a book called uh, In Order to Live, A North Korean Girl's Journey to Freedom. And in it, she talks about the things that she experienced in North Korea and how devastating it was. And uh, there's one line in particular that stuck out to me. And she says, quote, There were so many desperate people on the streets crying for help that you had to shut off your heart or the pain would be too much. After a while, you can't care anymore. And that is what hell is like. And um, so anyway, the whole thing's really interesting. And I'm starting to read the book, but uh, I haven't finished it yet. And so, anyway. So I, I, I think if something can help North Korea... Maybe that's not such a bad thing, but it probably puts us in a pretty bad position diplomatically and strategically. Yeah. You talked about trying to get culture into North Korea. We've been, we have, and many other countries have been trying to do that. Like, I watched a documentary at one point about people, about literally these smugglers who smuggled culture, other cultures into North Korea to give to the people. So they can try and make a change because they can't. Yeah, I mean, 
that's pretty common. There's actually a documentary on Netflix about that too. She actually talks about that in here. She talks about how um, it wasn't until she escaped to China in 2007 and read a translation of George Orwell's 1984 that she understood the idea of doublethink. And she talks about how, she says, quote, it is how you can believe that North Korea is a socialist paradise, the best country in the world with the happiest people who have nothing to envy, while devouring movies and TV programs that show ordinary people and enemy nations enjoying a level of prosperity that you couldn't imagine in your dreams. It is how you can sit in Hyasan watching propaganda videos showing productive factories, supermarkets stocked with food, and well-dressed people in amusement parks, and believe you are living on the same planet as your government leaders. It is how you can recite the motto, children are king, in school, then walk past the orphanage where children with bloated bellies stare at you with hungry eyes. So. Gosh. Yeah, it's dark. I mean, it's... it's That's it's just depressing. North Korea, though. It's just dark. Yes. So. Anyway. Amr. Long time coming. Why? I almost think about it, I can remember when this podcast started just an hour ago. I remember those days. You're all so young and so innocent. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> oh, your jokes, man. But... Something that I definitely want to touch on in terms of South Korea and the new president, in terms of not wanting to go as all as whole hog on this North Korea issue. I mean, that's completely reasonable because Donald Trump can afford to do that. He can afford to say, we're going to send these destroyers that will get there eventually. You know, they're not on their way there now. But they'll get there eventually. Because as the United States, we're not in any particular danger. Because there were... Because something that I read in a Tariq Ali book. Um, Tariq Ali is a very famous political commentator. He is an atheist. And he's on democracy now a lot. And which is, there was... Iraq, which everyone said had WMDs, and as we've discovered, they really didn't. And we went into, we went in and declared war on them. But there was another country in that same area that actually had WMDs, and we had proof that they had WMDs. And that was actually when we decided to say, we're not going to actually attack them, we're going to negotiate. Every single time... The United States has kind of gone into one of these big conflicts since the end of World War II. It's been these countries that we don't especially take very seriously, like Korea or Vietnam. I mean, we'll be going into Korea again, but that's the whole idea. As a result, this new president, who is a human rights lawyer, knows that as it stands, a war with North Korea would not be something that would be beneficial to any sides. Because ignoring the cost to South Korean lives and ignoring the cost to American lives, it would have a great deal of cost on the lives of North Korean citizens. Oh, because yeah. of all the bombing that would be required. 
And I don't think that I'm like the biggest problem with our war in Iraq and Afghanistan, Afghanistan is basically is that we went in, we flattened the army, we defeated them, then we disbanded the army. And then as a result, we had these cells form up like these terrorist cells or basically cells of people that did not want the United States to be there. As a result, we weren't really entirely sure who we were fighting, who's an enemy, who is a civilian. We don't know. And quite frankly, I would not put it beyond King Jong-un to just have a bunch of his soldiers pretend to be civilians until we get another recreation of Vietnam. And we're just killing innocent civilians. And then they're just saying, well, look, you know, here are these American soldiers in North Korea killing our citizens, and they haven't done anything wrong. Like, it's easy to just say we want to go to war with North Korea, but actually walking the walk and doing it without horribly mucking things up is a lot harder. Oh, yeah. And also, just to take a small step back for a quick little thing, um, stepping back to how we talked about how other countries all kind of teach that you should hate America, like, just a small thing is in Vietnam, they they what they refer to as the Vietnam, what we refer to as the Vietnam War, they refer to as the America War. Like we, like the Vietnam War already has like a bad rap, but and it can and it gets looped in with Vietnam. So it goes the same way with them. The America for them, it's called the American War. The American War gets a bad rap, and America as well gets that as well. That was just my two cents for that ball. Alright. I think we basically all agree pretty much, so... Yeah. Okay. Amen. So, last but not least, we have the big cheese of this week. Which I'll keep referring to as the big cheese because it makes Paul want to strangle me. God damn it. (laughs) Is that Donald Trump fires Trump? How dare you? So uh, James Comey was fired on Tuesday by President Trump, and the first official explanation for the decision given by the White House was that it was due to his botched handling of the conclusion of the FBI investigation into Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server, a private email server, when she was Secretary of State. Uh, that explanation would almost immediately be contradicted by news reports and later the president of himself. The U.S. intelligence community believes that the Russian government hacked Democratic primary and Clinton campaign emails in order to help Mr. Trump win the election. President Trump has continuously pushed back against that finding and has been angered by an FBI investigation into the alleged interference that is also specifically examining possible links in cooperation between figures in his campaign and the Russian government. In March, Mr. Comey said publicly the FBI would follow the facts wherever they lead. It is for this reason that there has been so much shock and outrage to Mr. Comey's uh, firing. For many commentators, it was a blatant attempt to hurt the investigation, and Democrats are now calling for a special counsel to be appointed to lead the inquiry to protect its independence. 
In his initial letter saying he was acting on recommendations from Attorney General Jeff Sessions and Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, he explicitly noted that Mr. Comey had informed him on three separate occasions that he was not personally under investigation in relation to the Russia inquiry. From there, things began to unravel. In his first in-person explanation, Donald Trump said he fired Comey because he was, quote, not doing a good job. Later on Wednesday, Mr. Trump also met the foreign minister and Russian ambassador to Washington in another bit of awkward timing. Then on Thursday, in an NBC interview, the U.S. president said he had actually alone decided to fire Mr. Comey, who he called a, quote, showboat and grandstander. He also said he was thinking about the Russia thing when he made the decision. These comments, of course, contradicted his team's earlier explanations <clears throat> that the recommendation from Mr. Rosenstein in particular, painted as a man of integrity and independence, had prompted the firing rather than any political motivated reasoning. On Friday, the president administered, admitted on Twitter there had been inaccurate and conflicting statements, but then angrily suggested that all White House press briefings should be canceled for, quote, accuracy. In his NBC interview, the U.S. president also described a January dinner with James Comey at which he was told he was not under investigation. He said Mr. Comey had requested the dinner because he wanted to keep his FBI job. The New York Times is also reporting that the president asked Mr. Comey for a pledge of loyalty, and he said no. The White House denies the story. All right, let's go, Brett. <clears throat> I think this probably should have been done sooner because um, if, you, if, if you look at Comey's history, like um, he was in charge of, charge of the FBI during the San Bernardino shootings and also um, the Orlando nightclub shootings. And each time, like they had a lot of intelligence about the culprits and what they were doing, what their motives were, and what their background was, and they, like, got guns. And yet the FBI didn't act at all, or they acted, like, not enough, obviously, to prevent it. So if you have some like that running the FBI, then they're just incompetent, and they need to leave. Um, obviously, like, Trump kept him along because he was grateful for the um the investigation with hillary's emails which i think skewed the election a little bit but i don't think it really like it was like it did it wasn't the deciding factor but it helped him so he kept him on and comey refused to drop the the russian um investigation so trump canned him So you think that is the reason he did it? The Russian investigation, yeah. Okay. Amr? Um, so I'd like to begin by stating the words of the great Keith Olbermann, who has... Oh, great. Okay. I, I, I take it there's not a lot of Keith Olbermann fans here. Okay. He's about as partisan as it gets. In the words of the great Keith Olbermann, you don't fire the man who's investigating you. I mean, I'm going to say what every newscaster from here to Timbuktu has been saying. This is exactly like what happened when Nixon decided to fire Cox. 
Cox specifically being the attorney hired to look into Watergate. Or the special, sorry, not hired, appointed to look into Watergate. I mean, I, I, I don't understand, well, I understand how we've come to this point, but just, I want to take a minute of silence for the American democracy. Okay. Taking a minute of silence for the American democracy. Are we going to edit it out? Sure, Paul. Just edit a minute in of silence for the American democracy. No problem. Wait. Anyways, so just what 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 Trump is doing here is he fired Comey because Comey is no longer doing exactly what he wanted. He's not being his pet monkey anymore. Now that he's looking into Russia and he's looking into possible allegations with Trump and Russia, then I think that's exactly why he was fired, because he thinks that Comey might come up with something or that he might end up losing his job over this and that this might cause him problems farther down the line. I feel like the fact that he fired James Comey should in itself be an impeachable offense, but that's not going to happen because the Senate and the House are so focused on promoting Republican ideology, and they're so focused on our House, our group versus everybody else, simply on the fact that we want to have our own special little boy old men's club and keep those annoying Democrats out and not agree with them or work with them on anything because of partisan hackery and partisan bullshit. Like... In the days of Richard Nixon, you know, we have Barry Goldwater telling Richard Nixon, if you don't resign, I will move to impeach you. Like we had Republicans uniting against Richard Nixon. One of the people who wrote the water report, uh, Bob Woodward. What is this laughing? Oh, you can hear that? God. Yes. Thin walls. Okay. Sorry, go ahead, Elmer. One of the people writing the Watergate reports I'll meet myself. was a registered Republican. Like, we need to reach a point in which we say enough is enough. And when we say that I don't care if this person's a Democrat. I don't care if this person's a Republican. This person is trying to subvert our democracy. And that's not okay. And that's kind of my two cents on it, I guess. Okay. Well, so... Um, I'm going to respond to that briefly. Uh, I don't think that this is... A constitutional crisis, the way some people are spending it to be. Uh, I don't think that this is exactly the same as Nixon trying to fire uh, what's his name, the the, the special prosecutor, uh, the, Cox. Yeah, Cox. There is a slight difference. Constitutionally, Trump does have the right to fire Comey. Um, 
Nixon didn't have the right to fire the special prosecutor who was appointed by Congress, uh, which is why he had to tell his attorney general to do it. And the attorney general said no. Then the deputy attorney general, he told him to do it. The deputy attorney general said no and resigned. And then he told the next guy in line, I don't even remember who it was, uh, told him to do it. And that guy finally did fire the special prosecutor. That, that was the bloody Saturday, right? This isn't the same. Trump fired Comey. He had a right to fire Comey. Um, so I don't think it's, from that perspective, we're not in peril the same way. That doesn't mean that this wasn't a sad moment for democracy, which I'll get to. But I do want to start with a mini rant here, and I promise this will not go on as long as I did last week. <laughs> so I, one of the things I've seen all week, ever since this happened, are all these stupid memes and posts and like conservatives being like, oh my God, Democrats are hypocrites. And you know Chuck Schumer was... You know, saying that that Comey should be fired, and now he's saying it's not. Dude, stop. Okay, for one, it's incredibly ironic given the immense amount of hypocrisy it would have taken for Trump to actually fire Comey over the Clinton emails, right? Because he constantly praised Comey for going after Clinton, especially in October when he announced the the laptop emails, which ended up being nothing. He attacked Comey when he didn't prosecute Clinton, right? And by the way. If you're a person who thinks Clinton should be in jail and you believe Trump's original story for firing Comey, which was over the Clinton emails, then you're also a hypocrite because the DOJ's letter recommending Comey's firing was basically validating every single liberal and Democratic complaint about Comey's actions last year. Right. So uh, if you thought that Comey was did everything right last year, except for prosecute Hillary Clinton. This letter that Trump just put out undermines all of that. So, uh, but regardless of that, I think for anybody, it's both completely fair and, in fact, prudent to both be upset about Comey's handling of the email situation last year and also still think that it's improper for the president to fire the FBI director while the FBI is investigating his campaign for collusion, for collusion with Russian hackers. So, yes, Comey messed up the Clinton investigation, and he should have been fired. But he should have been fired last year by Obama when the mistakes were made. Or if Trump was really concerned that his actions had undermined the integrity of the FBI, which is what he said, he could have fired him when he took office or at any time in the two months before Comey announced that the FBI was investigating the Trump campaign. The fact that he waited until literally the week after Comey reportedly asked for more resources to investigate the tr Russian ties is incredibly sketchy. And anybody should be worried about that, regardless of how they felt Kobe handled the emails. So this isn't a case of the only person really being hypocritical here is Donald Trump with that first email, which by the end of the week, Donald Trump had just disavowed that completely. So I guess it doesn't really matter. So anyway, that was my mini rant about that. Now on to the main point, though, which is what this means. And there are three points that, that I want to make here. One, Trump is unhinged, and he's becoming a real liability for the country. He cannot keep on one point from one sentence to the next, and he acts impulsively without any thought of what comes next. There's no step two to him. Point two, I think this is the modern left-right divide in a microcosm. 
the right is completely ignoring this blatant obstruction of justice, disregard for democratic norms, and potential constitutional crisis. And they're just completely ignoring it and barreling forward at 100 miles per hour with their agenda. And they're using this as cover, right? I think on some level, they enjoy the fact that all this is happening because it allows them to do things like sneak in. First of all, it allows them to attack Democrats and liberals as being on a witch hunt. And two, it allows them to sneak in very unpopular health care bills and tax plans <laughs> and nobody's paying attention to it because everybody's talking about Comey and Russia and Trump. And the left on the means in the meantime is completely fragmented on how to handle this. So the establishment, the you know, Chuck Schumer, the the mainstream democratic politicians, they are only talking about Russia and they're making this all about Trump. And meanwhile, the progressive left is tearing itself apart trying to dismiss it as a distraction. So they're saying, "No, stop focusing on Trump, stop focusing on Russia, focus on single payer healthcare, focus on tax reforms, things like that." And at the end of the day, they're both wrong, and I'll get into why. But, and my third point is, this is reminiscent of Watergate and Nixon from a political perspective. I don't think it's following the same path the way some people have said. But from a political and a cultural movement perspective, this is very reminiscent. And if it is, that's not a good sign for Democrats. So I think in terms of what this means in terms of Russia... And is he, did he collude and all that stuff? Uh, there's two options here. And both of them, to be honest with you, um, both of them make Trump seem more dumb and more dangerous than I really expected. Because the two options are, one, Trump really did collude with Russia. He fired Comey because he was afraid of the investigation. And he thought this would be a good way to get rid of it. <clears throat> that makes him dumb. Because this is only going to ramp up the investigation that so far most of the GOP has actively resisted. They've helped him avoid this, right? And they're already starting to see congressional Republicans and Senate Republicans come out and say, maybe we do need a special prosecutor. So if he was trying to get rid of the investigation, this was a dumb way to do it. It's also a very autocratic thing to do. To just start firing people in the administration because they're investigating you is a dangerous slippery slope. It's not a constitutional crisis. But it's a very dangerous first step. Um, and it's perhaps the biggest step he's taken so far. Now, there's the other option, and I'm not sure which one is more likely at this point. The other option is Trump didn't collude with Russia. He really just fired Comey because he was tired of hearing about the investigation on TV. And he there's actually nothing there. He was just mad, and he just fired the guy. Uh, again, this makes him look pretty dumb because if he thought that Democrats were actually going to support him on this and not be suspicious, that was completely ridiculous. And if he didn't do anything, if he actually didn't collude with Russia, he is doing everything he can to make it look like it did. Uh, but and I think the more dangerous part here is that this also implies that there really is no strategy or ideology to Trump, that he's constantly just leaps without looking he gets mad and he reacts. And that's really dangerous. And there's an article that was written about this in Vox uh, that we'll link to. And here's a quote from it. it says, we badly want to understand Trump to grasp him. 
It might give us some sense of control or at least an ability to predict, predict what he will do next. But what if there's nothing to understand? What if there's no there there? What if our attempts to explain Trump have failed, not because we haven't hit on the right one, but because we are, theory of mind-wise, over-interpreting the text? In short, what if Trump is exactly as he appears? A hopeless narcissist with the attention span of a fruit fly, unable to maintain consistent beliefs or commitments from one moment to the moment, acting on base instinct entirely situationally to bolster his fragile ego. We're really not prepared to deal with that. And I think that is really scary. And at this point, I don't know which one is more likely, to be honest. I don't know which one I believe. There's lots of smoke that he colluded with Russia. There's not a lot of evidence so far. But if he didn't collude with Russia and he's doing all this stuff, that re- that might worry me even more than if he did. I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, to the second point, Republicans are barreling through, or, or to the point about this um, kind of reflecting the 60s. Um, so I think there's a lot of similarities between Trump and Nixon already. Uh, Nixon also attacked the media a lot. They both ran as law and order candidates. They both had kind of a grab bag of policies. Uh, fiscal conservatives didn't like Nixon because he supported, like he signed into law. I think, I'm pretty sure he signed Medicaid into law. Um, he was vice president for Dwight Eisenhower, who had a 92% tax rate at the time. Um, huge investment infrastructure plan. So Trump has kind of some of that going on economically. Uh, also, Trump, the Islamophobe, uh, Nixon was pretty widely known as an anti-Semite. So, but d- even deeper, I think Trump's election was similar to, to Nixon and that it was a backlash to liberal activism, right? In the sixties, there was a lot of feminism, civil rights, anti-war activism, and Nixon was a conservative rebuke to that. And, um, I think the same thing happened here where there's black lives matter or, fight for 15, things like that. I think Trump is very much a conservative backlash to liberal activism during the latter uh, years of the Obama administration. But what's interesting and why this is dangerous for Democrats is when Watergate became a thing, conservatives actually coalesced behind Nixon. Uh, Not all Republicans did, but conservatives did. So they blamed the investigation on liberal media, conspiracies and partisanship. And when the evidence was incontrovertible, they blamed it on the expansion of executive power. And I think the same thing's happening here. Now, what was different about the 60s and why this is dangerous for Democrats is in the 60s, the parties were less polarized, right? So conservatives rallied behind Nixon in a way that they hadn't beforehand because they didn't like his economic policy. But there were still liberal Republicans. And the liberal Republicans largely sided with the Democrats and independents saying, okay, the guy broke the law, he's got to go. There's no liberal Republicans left. There's no real conservative Democrats left either. So... So what you saw in the 60s was after the Watergate scandal happened, Nixon had like a, a almost a 60 percent approval rating among uh, Republicans for, you know, oh, he's doing a good job and that Democrats are using Watergate to attack him. As of right now, for Trump, 79 percent of Republicans think that Trump was right to fire Comey. Right. So this idea of finding liberal, sympathetic Republicans is going to be very difficult if you're a Democrat trying to go after Trump on this. Uh, the other big problems that Democrats have is that in the 60s, when Trump, when Nixon was in office and all this stuff was happening, Democrats had a stranglehold on the House of Representatives and local government, right? 
I mean, Democrats controlled the House of Representatives from the 40s all the way through the 90s, and they control most state legislatures. The opposite is true today. Governments or Democrats are wiped out, and not they've been gerrymandered to such a point that they'll have to win. They'll have to do 7 to 12 points better than Republicans in 2018 just to win a majority. And they now only have 60, they've lost 66 of 99 state-level legislatures and 32 governor's mansions. If this does not go the Democrats' way and people don't swing against Trump for this, and so far Republicans aren't swinging against Trump for this, this could be really, really devastating for Democrats if they continue to focus on the Trump-Russia thing. So, and the third point is the conservative media today is far stronger and far more insidious than the conservative <laughs> media of the 60s. So they're uninterested in fairness or reality. And that's just, it's going to be hard to overcome that. Okay, so if it's so disadvantageous to, to liberals, then why is, why is Trump a bubbling idiot then? It seems like a really good Machiavelli, Machiavellian move. What do you mean? Getting the Democrats to focus on something that won't come to fruition and dividing them. Well, no, because I think what's most likely to happen is if he actually did collude with Russia, then he's gonna, it's going to get found out. He's not smart enough to cover it up. Um, certainly not after firing the lead investigator. And he'll get impeached. But that doesn't mean Democrats are going to do well in 2018 or 2020. Uh, that doesn't mean that this is going to turn out to be a win for them. It would be dumb for Trump, um, but it wouldn't necessarily be a win for Democrats. So, if I may, I'd like to correct some things that I don't necessarily agree with in Paul's thing. Because the reason Richard Nixon won the elections is because the person he was running against, um, his name escapes me, and that's honestly a little embarrassing, but... Uh, McGovern, wasn't it? No, no, no. McGovern was the second time. I'm talking about the first time. Oh, yeah. The first time was Johnson's vice president. Uh, fuck. Yeah, I forgot what his name was, too. Anyway, go ahead. Oh. The, the point that I'm trying to make is, well, let's start with the beginning. I, I, I mean, I feel that's interesting that we're comparing Nixon and Trump so much, but Nixon was actually the one who established the EPA. Okay. Yeah. Well, so this goes to a larger point that Trump is not at all governing the way he campaigned. Oh, here it is. Hubert Humphrey. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. He was running against Hubert Humphrey. Anyway, Hubert Humphrey was running on the strengths of the peace talks between North Vietnam and South Vietnam. Mm -hmm. You know, it looked like there was going to be a peaceful end to the war. But then Richard Nixon went in and told the South Vietnamese to not negotiate properly because North Vietnamese were going to screw them over. And essentially speaking, caused them to bomb the peace talks. Then... He, whenever he went on and gave election rhetoric, he would publicly criticize Hubert Humphrey for failing to come through on peace talks. And that's one of the bigger reasons that he won. 
it wasn't because of a backlash against liberalism. It was because of this whole thing of, with Nixon, we can get a better end to this awful war that was started by Lyndon B. Johnson. Well, okay. Can you really say that one is a bigger reason than the other? Yeah, I, I think because I think you, you present a valid point. By the way, that was Republican strategy 101 for a long time because Reagan did the same thing in, in 80, um, right, with the Iranian <laughs> hostages. And Don't even get started on rat fucking. Yeah, so anyway. So, no, but I think, yes, there is that component to it. Uh, but Nixon also, again, he did run on law and order. And he's the one who started the drug war and outlaw and started the DEA. So yes, he started the EPA, also started the DEA, right? And started cracking down on drugs. And his uh, one of his advisors came out last year and said it explicitly. Yeah, we did this to attack liberals. Uh, we we went after marijuana because liberal hippies smoked it, and we went after cocaine or we went after crack. Um, we were actually crack wasn't around then. We went after other drugs because black people used it. And those were our two political enemies. So they were starting to vote for Democrats. So that's why we started the drug war. So there very much was. And also don't forget what happened in 1968 was there was the violent protests at the Democratic primary, the Democratic National Convention. And that was seen as the same thing, which was these liberal activists are getting out of hand. Wasn't that a result of rat fucking, though? Yes, there was. They were agitators, but that's doesn't doesn't sound like a good time for Democrats in general. So anyway, okay. Any other thoughts? I mean, I kind of want to look up that West one West Wing quote. Well, okay. While you look that up, I'm going to pose two questions. One. Is there any there there? And that is, do we actually think, and we've talked about it slightly before, do we actually think, has our opinions changed on did Trump actually collude with Russia? And two, is this is this going to backfire? Is this going to work to Democrats' favor or is it going to backfire? I think that even if we find direct proof, actually, wait, Alan, did you give your, did you give your, Peace take on this? I don't really have much of an opinion on this subject. That has not already been stated. All right. So I feel as if the Democrats could actually, unless the Democrats actually have like a bloody letter with Trump's signature on it, you know, written to Vladimir Putin saying, you know, I am forever your servant. You know, I will do whatever you say and all that stuff. Like, real Watergate-level tapes where we have Donald Trump on tape explaining how he colluded with Russia to win the election and how they've affected his policymaking, then nothing's going to change. And the only reason that they would that would cause anything to po- po- possibly happen is because I don't think... A lot of the people supporting Trump are giant fans of Russia. What with the Cold War and everything, and the Cold War mentality. So I think that if it came out that Trump was publicly very much a pawn of the Russians, then he could get impeached. But aside from that, to quote Donald Trump, 
if I shot someone, these people would probably still vote for me. Ooh. All right. Um, I don't think that the collusion has any merit, at least uh, with Trump, like, working with Russian government officials. Because if you think about it, like, if you're if you're Russia, why do you need to collude with the the uh, the Trump campaign in order to um, like slander Hillary Clinton? It's completely unnecessary, and it creates the risk of Trump um, falling under investigation and getting uh, and and getting impeached. So um, I think that. The Russians definitely were interfering with the election. Well, not the election itself, but just with public opinion, with like fake news sites and stuff like that. But ultimately, like they don't need to. They they would have avoided like working with the Trump campaign just because it was such a it would be such a huge liability and the benefit there like. What what would the possible benefit be? Why can't you just make a bunch of fake news sites? Um. So, with that, um, Trump basically is looking at at Comey, who's who's continues to like poke into this, and I think at the higher levels, I know that Feinstein said that there was like no evidence that Trump was colluding, who's like um, a huge Democratic leader, um, so. I think ultimately it's just Comey caving into like the democratic influence on him because he wants to be impartial basically that's Comey's whole thing and I believe that he does but I think part of his way is I think he probably felt slightly um, guilty for for um, saying the things he did uh, what was it the recommendation to continue investigating uh, the email scandal which really did help Trump. Um, and if he wants to be impartial, um, that that like goes against what he was standing for as like a head of the FBI director. So if he has that weighing on his conscience, he's going to be a lot more. Um, he's not. He's going to be a lot more accepting of um, like helping the Democrats, not in a way that's like blatantly like, oh, let's go after these unfounded accusations that we have them as more of like oh well let's just investigate this more and if we find anything like why would you deny the american people the right to know when we don't know like every little detail about this so i think it was a case of that and they played on um comey's a better conscience that's my uh, scoop do you think this is gonna be a winning issue for democrats no, they're going to get swamped by it. I mean, there's, yeah, as long as Trump keeps his base, the the trend should continue. And I don't think that there's anything particularly energizing about, like, not getting about, about the Russian, uh, the Russian question, because it seems... It's, it seems really like Cold War kind of neocon war hawk uh, agenda that a lot of Bernie supporters and a lot of the more progressive types don't like. So I don't think it's a winning strategy for the Democrats at all. And 
I think Trump probably was just fed up with Comey um, continuing to look into it. So, right. yeah, so I think I kind of take a middle ground on this. The, what I've come to think more and more is that I don't think, and this is all just speculation because there's not the evidence out there um, or we don't know all of it yet. Based on what I've seen, I really, the thought that Trump himself was directly colluding with Russia or that there was some kind of quid pro quo, I don't know that I believe that. Um, I don't know that if he had, it just feels like he would have just been an idiot and said something about it already. Um, but beyond that, there's really no evidence so far that points to it, at least that we know about. I do want to make a point that people have talked about this, like, oh, Feinstein said there's no evidence, and, uh, you know, uh, Carr or whatever said that there's no evidence of this, the, the former uh, CIA guy, and... Um, and that wasn't actually true, like actually. And if you click the other link in the show notes, um, the guy Oh, said, fake news. What? Fake news. No. Clapper said huh? that, uh, he said that he never actually said that there's no evidence that, that there was collusion. What he said was, um, what he said was that there was no, uh, they had nothing in the CIA uh, but that it would have been in the FBI anyway. So he was saying that he wasn't in a position to say whether there is evidence. So anyway, um, but I, I think increasingly what I think is that it's very clear that there were people in the administration who were dealing with Russia and they were probably using Donald Trump is my opinion. I think one, first of all, uh, Michael Flynn was subpoenaed this week for uh, he had a, what was it five hundred thousand uh, dollar payoff from a Russian firm. Um, he has already been shown that he was acting as a foreign agent for Turkey. He didn't disclose that. Um, Roger Stone as another guy who has very dubious links to Russia and was you know it's admitted that he was talking to the hacker that like that leaked the uh, emails. Um, so did Trump personally know anything about it? I don't know. I increasingly, I think that he didn't, I think he was just used by people that did have deals. Um, and I don't even know that he necessarily knows that now. Um, so I think there was collusion there, but I don't necessarily know that it goes all the way to Trump. And I don't know that that would be anything that would, get him impeached, right? Uh, in terms of is this going to help Democrats, I really don't think it is. I, I think his base is leaning into this. You, know, you talk about that, you know, the people that supported Trump didn't don't like Russia because of the Cold War stuff. Putin's approval rating rose, I think it was 30 points among Republicans between the end of 2015 and the end of 2016, just because of Trump, Right. The, the stranglehold that he has, I mean, like you said, his quote was, he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and people would still vote for him. The stranglehold that he has, the cult-like obsession that people have with him, 
is impossible to overcome. And Republicans, I, 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 Democrats should get past the idea that they can convert any Republicans away from supporting Donald Trump. It's just not going to happen. The only thing you can do is one, rally your base. Two, try to peel off independents who don't like Trump, but voted for him anyway because of whatever reason. Economic anxiety, racism, authoritarianism. Most of the evidence indicated it's the latter two. Um, you have to find some way to send a message to get those people. And being anti-Trump is not going to do that. Uh, Donald Trump, on the day of the election, had a 42% approval rating. Right? The idea that Hillary Clinton ran her whole campaign on... Donald Trump sucks, and it wasn't enough. She lost. She won the popular vote. There's enough people that agreed Donald Trump sucks, but there weren't enough people in the right places. And I feel like Democrats aren't learning that lesson at all. In fact, they're learning the opposite lesson, which is, well, we can go after these upper-middle-class, suburban white Republicans who are really turned off by Trump, but you know they want tax cuts and stuff like that. We can go after them. No. Because the only thing you're going to do is you're going to lose more people in the independents who and who need health care and are going to be pissed off by this Republican plan, but are also pissed off by Obamacare. And Democrats are just not forming a coherent strategy right now. And it's really, if they don't get on the ball, don't ignore the Russia thing. Don't ignore Trump's insanity. But you literally can't make that the only thing you run on. It didn't work in 2016. I don't think it'll work in 2018, and I don't think it'll work in 2020. So, that's my take. Okay, so Alan, I'm interested. So you're you're independent. You mentioned earlier that you didn't vote uh, for either one in 2016. Uh, does any of this stuff influence you in 2018 or 2020? Any of this stuff about about Trump and Russia? But well. I didn't vote for either of them because I didn't believe, I didn't trust either of them to run the country to begin with. His current actions have not disbelie- has not put away my words. If anything, he has intensified them. And his thing with firing the director was just not a smart move. That that really cements home that he's that he's not wolf, he's just not worth the time because whether whether. His actions was to hide his collusion with Russia, or it was just just because he was done with it. It was just not a smart time to do it. And most, and pretty much all of America has saw that that was probably the worst time to fire him. Like, the only way you could have gotten worse is if you fired him right after he made the announcement. Okay, so you wouldn't vote for him again, but you didn't vote for him the last time. I guess the real question is, let's say theoretically... And you didn't like him even before the Comey thing, right? Like, you didn't no. like him because of the healthcare thing. You didn't like him because of his rhetoric. What what was it? Let's put it this way. Um, common, I live in Iowa. The common thing around here was people were voting for him because literally the comment I got the most of the time because I had to do a project for this for my government class was, we're not going to vote for Hillary because he's guaranteed to fuck us. Trump, he's less likely to. Like, a lot of people aren't happy with him, and I kind of agreed with that, because 
so far, he's so pulls from the head, no tact, no... Like, you should hold yourself up to a certain code of honor, at least. And he just was fell way below the ball. Because he just had no tact. But, like, I don't like so, him as a person, and I don't like it, and I didn't like a lot of his policies. So, okay, let me ask you, let me ask it this way then. Let's say, theoretically, God forbid, in 2020, it is Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump again. Or, or let's not even say Hillary Clinton, because Jesus Christ, I don't even want to imagine it. Let's say it was somebody like Nancy Pelosi or um, fuck Chuck Schumer or something like that, right? Do what? Keep in mind, I'm fairly politically inept, so you got to explain who those people are. So Nancy Pelosi is the current uh, leader uh, or of the Democratic House Caucus. She's the House Minority Leader. She was she looks uh, like a grandma. Okay. Well, that's hardly relevant. Okay. So, but thanks, Brett. Uh, but no, of course she's it's irrelevant. Most she's, people vote on looks. Well, Trump supporters definitely do. I would agree with that. Uh, <laughs> well, actually, I, I don't even I agree with that because how the hell did Trump get elected? Anyway, it doesn't matter. This is ridiculous. The point is, uh, she's from San Francisco. She's very much um, run of the mill. She's very similar to Hillary Clinton in terms of politics. Okay. So, let's say if it was Nancy Pelosi against Donald Trump in 2020. Has Donald Trump done enough for you not just to not vote for him, but to actively vote against him? That really comes down... Well... I'm not fully sure myself. If he was... If he was like... That really comes down... I am not completely sure myself. If he was colluding with Russia, it just cements my whole thing. It's like, let's say, though, so let's say they all founded that he was colluding with Russia. Yes, that would push me completely away from him. If he's not, that's still going to push me away from him. That's already cemented in. But I'm not completely sure. So what because, would it say? Once again, I'm thinking about the people. I'm also thinking about. I'm thinking about the people. I'm because when I was thinking about last time I vote, I was like, okay. Trump's going to win because that's just the people around me, and my vote doesn't matter whether I vote for either side. Well, me pushing against him, it's just going to be... I Really, what I'm trying to get at is I'm not even sure myself. So, so you, you mentioned that you thought the idea was that Hillary Clinton was going to fuck us worse. Why was that? Oh, that, that? That was the general... That was the general consensus from... Um, uh, most of the like in Iowa, most big, our biggest ex, our biggest business is farming, and I don't remember the exact reasons. It's been far too long, and my memory is far too bad for it. But that was the general consensus around a lot of people. Like, see, that, but, but yeah, from around most of like the farmers and other people, like, hold like the things this he's gonna do, he's promising to do, are going to hold us. Things Trump's gonna do. We don't know if he's going to. So and what, what, we what also were the swear, things? What were the things that she wanted to do that would hurt? As I said, my memory is far too bad for it. I didn't. My memory is far too bad for this, and it was far too long ago. Okay, well, let's ask this more general way. What would it take for you, not just to vote 
against him in 2020, but let's say in 2018, right? When when we're trying to swing back the House, for example, Democrats are trying to swing back the House so that Trump no longer has a majority in the House and the Senate. What would it take for you to vote Democrat in 2018? Very little, because... Well, I will slip a different lid, and that does not really matter. But the big tenet of it is balance. Currently, it is not balanced in the slightest. So, just it'd be my part to just try to set balance a bit. Interesting. Because currently, it's very one-sided how this country is going currently. Uh, so. Well, okay, Just let me ask, which, Sorry, which side so, do you no. think that is? I feel like Republicans only have, like, the biggest swing currently. Okay. So you're tempted to vote Democrat just to swing it back, or just to bring balance? Yeah, yeah just to bring balance. Like, let's say if it, was a, if it was a heavy Democratic hold, I would vote Republican. Because I just... Because if one side has all the power... It doesn't help. It doesn't help the other other side at all. Like there's compromise for a reason. So you're not concerned with the fact that there hasn't been any evidence of compromise over the last decade. That essentially yeah, just, a party has to have complete control to implement any kind of real policy. Well, no, it does not. They do not have to be complete control. Like you can implement policies in in balance easily. It's just. They can sneak past, they can get, because of their num because of numbers, they can get things that kind of, all that stuff that can actually halt people. Like, that just target, like, specific type, specific people in a more warty, lawyer way, so it's not obvious. Well, but, okay, okay, but, so, let me po- pose this to you. Just going on metrics, during the Obama administration... Uh, especially from 2010 on, which 2010 is when uh, Republicans took back over the House. Um, because when Obama was elected in 2008, he had a majority in the House and he had a majority in the Senate. Um, and Democrats had majorities through most state legislatures and, and governors. And just like you're talking about, things swung back to the Republican side um, in 2010. Now, from 2010 through 2016... The Senate issued more filibusters than it had at any point in congressional history up to that point. And the amount of laws being passed through Congress hit the lowest point they had since before the Great Depression in the 1940s, 1930s. And there is empirical evidence that the parties at this point are more polarized than they have ever been in recorded last 70 years. And that there is less crossover in votes and less compromise between Democrats and Republicans. Does that sway your opinion at all in terms of voting based purely on balance and shifting power from one to the other? Because the evidence is they're not, they're not compromising. They're not They're not not working across the aisle. So trying to maintain balance in hopes that they compromise does, does that still make yeah. sense going forward? Yeah, it makes complete sense. I'll get, my biggest thing is that I will say this a thousand times. 
government is flawed and it will always be flawed even when we try to fix it. Because it's not a perfect system, it never will be. So is there a policy that somebody could propose that would sway you to look beyond just switching power? Maybe. It's like, I'm a I'm a, uh, I'm an independent. I'm what I believe is like the best choice, but I like look at recent of like me. I'm a person that will, when I hear about a new thing, I'll I'll do research about like the recent events. Like why is this coming into play at all? I'll okay. be like, like when I hear policies that's going to get passed, I'm going. I look up like, okay, why is this even going to get passed? And I'm like, okay, that makes sense. Okay, that doesn't make sense to me. Like, recent events. Like, due to, like, recent events. Or such and such like that. Or just history. Okay. Well, so here, let's use a recent example. So, uh, healthcare, right? Uh, Obamacare passed in 2010. There's a lot of backlash to it. A lot of Republicans got elected based on not liking Obamacare. The Republicans, at least in the House, passed their version of the health care bill, uh, repeal and replace, last week. And this, the scoring that we have based so far has said that it will uh, lead to 24 million people having losing health insurance and health coverage. 14 million of those coming from Medicaid, which covers low-income people, mainly families. And that it will it will help the deficit. It'll reduce the deficit mainly by cutting Medicaid funding. Um, it will also implement a six hundred billion dollar tax cut for people making more than two hundred thousand dollars a year. And but ultimately, in terms of healthcare, uh, older people the premiums will go up, coverage will diminish, sick people can potentially no longer be covered if they have pre-existing conditions. Their rates can also go up depending on if they keep insurance. Uh, However, young, healthy people who are not low income could see a slight increase, could see a slight benefit. They could see lower premiums. They could see um, more affordable health care, but it would also would not be required to cover as much, including things like Maternity care, prenatal care, uh, mental illness, sometimes even emergency visits and things like that. So, just based on healthcare, is there a policy position that you would get behind? Uh, I don't. I don't agree with the current one because I have friends who have pre-existing conditions who don't make that much money and like such. Like one of my best friends has Tourette's. He's always had Tourette's, and he has. And it will constantly be a problem for him. Like, that healthier part, And he has to get certain treatment for other things. And that will hurt him. Like, that will hurt him. And he's like... I grew, I grew up with the guy. So, so I don't agree with the current thing. Because, but, once again, this is like what a lot of people do. How does it affect me? That's one of... That's how I'm taking policy on this. Is because it's affecting me and the people close to me. I try not to do that very often, but sometimes I just can't. 
I mean, there's this quote that I quite like, which is, all politics is local. Yes. Well, yes, very. Yes, but that's becoming increasingly less so. In fact, over the last couple of decades, generally, local politics has gone to the opposite of whoever's in the presidential seat. So, particularly if you talk about Congress and state legislatures. So, mm-hmm. but anyway, so, okay. But on that tack, though, you bring up the good point of your, your friend with, uh, with Tourette's. And, and certainly, I think almost everybody knows somebody with pre-existing conditions. Yeah. So, a proposal at this point from certain Democrats and progressives is what's called single-payer health care, which is essentially Medicare, which we use right now to pay for... <laughs> Um, elderly people, retired people. Uh, Medicaid is also a single payer system, and it covers low income people. Uh, but essentially, it's a government funded, a publicly funded insurance program, which is instead of you paying health insurance premiums to Blue Cross Blue Shield or Humana or whatever, uh, you pay taxes, and uh, the government uh, essentially then is your insurance provider. And when you go to the hospital, you have a Medicare card or whatever, and the hospital gets paid by the government instead of getting paid by, um, like I said, Humana or something like that. And in fact, yeah, it, it can go public-private. Hum- Medicaid actually uses private insurance companies to underwrite and actually manage it. So like the government's really just providing the funding, but a private insurance company is still doing the underwriting and doing the maintenance, stuff like that. So anyway, but this is a system that uh, Canada has, for example – uh, most developed countries. The United States is really one of the only developed countries that doesn't have yeah. this sort of system. And so this has been proposed by Democrats. Now, what that entails is you're going to pay more in taxes in order to have this coverage. However, it will probably, if it's implemented correctly, be cheaper than health insurance premiums for a lot of people. And it will be truly universal coverage. So everyone, just by fact of being a citizen, will have an insurance card versus, you know, today there's 20 million people that don't have health insurance. Yeah. Like, well, I think I I read a statistic like a while back. I'm not sure how accurate it was, but I believe it was like somewhere in like 200,000 people, like over 200,000 people a year have to file bankruptcy because of medical bills. Yes, before Obamacare, fifty percent of bankruptcies in the United States were attributed to medical bills. Yeah, yeah. It's like, and also, you talked about how the new healthcare system was to lower the deficit. You don't lower the deficit by giving people tax cuts. Right. Well, they they had to like, lower the deficit by cutting Medicaid, by kicking yeah. fourteen million people off of low income. Yeah. Healthcare. And giving and, and and with that a little bit of that money, they're able to give other people dad's cuts. And I'm like, why? Why give them the cut? So if Democrats were to run on an idea of single payer, would that be enough to sway you to vote Democratic in twenty eighteen? Yeah, I think so. And there's my point. So that's why focusing on Trump Russia is a bad idea. Yeah, same. <laughs> Focus on policies that are getting passed. Yep. Okay, well, thank you. I appreciate your um, honesty. That's all, all I right. have. All right. please. Go. So let's wrap this thing up. I'm reading the goddamn quote. 
Okay. A quote from the West Wing. I'm tired of working for candidates who make me think that I should be embarrassed to believe what I believe. Sam, I'm tired of getting them elected. We all need some therapy. Because somebody came along and said liberal means soft on crime, soft on drugs, soft on communism, soft on defense. And we're going to tack you back to the Stone Age because people shouldn't have to work if they don't want to. And instead of saying, well, excuse me, you right-wing, reactionary, xenophobic, homophobic, anti-education, anti-choice, pro-gun, leave it to Beaver, trip back to the 50s, we cowered in the corner and said, please don't hurt me. No more. I really don't care who's right, who's wrong. We're both right, we're both wrong. Let's have two parties, huh? What do you say? Yeah, I feel like Hillary Clinton missed a really big opportunity that she had at the DNC last year where there were a lot of Republicans who came out and said this was the um, convention they should have had. It was very much pro-family. They were There were a lot of military people there. They talked a lot about patriotism. And you saw Hillary Clinton right after the DNC convention. Or, I mean, she had like a plus 12 to 14 point lead in the polls. And then she completely ignored it for the rest of the campaign, ran ads attacking Donald Trump, and the rest is history. She really, really fucked that up so badly. It is unbelievable to me. Yeah, my, And I just feel like the be- whole Democratic Party is doing it again. Yeah, one of my firm beliefs for, if you're going to want, one thing I wish that, that would be an actual thing, is that you're going to run for office or something like that, just say screw, the, just screw your opponent, don't even war yourself with them, and they'll attack, and like, there are ads that are directly pointed to attack uh, attack the other candidates. Yes, inform of what they do, but don't make it inherently like, yes, I'm attacking them. Yeah. Like there was a way, there's like ways of, oh, what do you think? Like being asked, like, what do you think of this this policy that they're proposing? Well, my opinion on it is this. Instead of saying they want to do this, they, 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 keep it more. I plan to do what I plan to do. Yep. I mean, that's fair because every single time you, this is something that they tell you in debate all the time, which is you need to spend as little time talking about what they say and spending more time talking about what you say. Because every single time you bring up their argument, you're just giving them free publicity. Yep. Yes. My opinion is just, just if they've made a policy that you don't agree with, yeah, go ahead. You can make an ad for that. Say this is what they this is what they said, and this is what I believe the plan to be. Well, here's my opinion on this. Like, don't just say this is what they plan to do, and this is what it's going to do. No, say this is okay. Add an extra bit to say, and this is what I think. Yep. God damn it, Hillary Clinton. That's that's my final word on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tack okay. ad after attack ad. I stopped watching the news because of that election. Yep. <sighs> okay, take us out, Armor. Yeah. Well, everybody, this has been the Kind of Paul podcast. Thank you for your attendance, and we hope to see you next week. Mention this the, is the, the Love Ball signing off. Mention the contact information. Oh, right. <laughs> sure. I have to mention contact information. So you can send us a handy dandy email at fairlypolitical at gmail.com. Fairly or, Political Podcast at Gmail. Fairly Political Podcast. 
You can all send an email to fairlypolitical at gmail.com, but I don't know if you'll be sending an email to you. Yes, not us. <laughs> yeah, not us. You can also join our... You can also like us on Facebook. We have a Facebook page, Fairly Political Podcast. We also have a Facebook group that you can join, Fairly Political Podcast. And on that group page, we post, you know, all of our political compass results. You know, so if you want to check that out, post your own result, you know, have, like, nice conversation. Go on over there. But, as always, it's been a pleasure, gentlemen, and I will see you next week. All right, see ya. See ya. Went pretty well. All right, bye.